This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years is the complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com. This is Richard Brust, the editor of Supreme Court Coverage at the ABA Journal. It's the first week in October, and litigators and constitutional law professors around the country pay close attention as the Supreme Court begins its 2010 term. This term offers fascinating case. The father of a Marine killed in Iraq and the pastor of a Kansas church battling over First Amendment rights, a state trying to curb the sale of violent video games to children, parents of autistic children seeking the right to sue, the issue of whether crowding was the primary cause of continuing violations of prisoners' constitutional rights to adequate health care, among many other topics. This is also the first time that three women have been justices, placing beyond the tipping point the acceptance of women on the court. It is also the first time since 1972 that a non-judge was named to the court. And with Justice Elena Kagan, all the justices attended either Harvard or Yale law schools, which to many makes the court seem more elitist than ever. We have an excellent panel of experts to talk about the Supreme Court this term. Amy Howe is a Supreme Court practitioner with Howe & Russell based in Bethesda, Maryland. She has served as counsel in more than two dozen merit cases, including those involving criminal law, the death penalty, the First Amendment, and bankruptcy. Amy lectures at the Stanford Law School Supreme Court Litigation and also has co-taught at the Harvard Law School Supreme Court Clinic. She also is the editor at the popular SCOTUS blog website that she and her husband, Tom Goldstein, produce. Joseph Tai teaches constitutional law at the University of Oklahoma. Among his classes are those involving Supreme Court decision-making, the First Amendment, and criminal procedure. Joe has served as a clerk to Justice John Paul Stevens and to Judge David Abel of the 10th U.S. Circuit. A frequent writer on the Supreme Court, Joe is working on a law school textbook on the Supreme Court, as well as writings about Justice Stevens. Joe has been the recipient of several awards for outstanding teaching at Oklahoma. Stephen Wormiel teaches constitutional law at American University's Washington College of Law. Before coming to, to American, Steve was a reporter for 12 years with the Wall Street Journal, covering the Supreme Court for more than 1,000 cases. Continuing his work as a writer, Steve is co-author of the recently published Justice Brennan, Liberal Champion, a biography of Justice William J. Brennan. Steve has also been active in the ABA, most recently serving as editorial board chair of the quarterly magazine Human Rights, a publication of the Individual Rights and Responsibilities section. We welcome you all to the panel. First, let's talk about the cases. As with any term, this one weighs upon the cases that the court has granted cert to. And Steve Wormiel, let me start with you. Two of the more interesting cases are, are both First Amendment related, 
and there's always nothing like a First Amendment case to draw out one of the more, some of the more interesting and, and outrageous litigants. These involve video games and protests and a Marine's funeral. So why don't you tell us a little bit about both of these cases? Sure, happy to start us off. Um, it, it's, it's fun to have a Supreme Court term in which you get sort of real kind of raw free speech challenges, if I can use that phrase. These are not kind of fine-tuning issues. These really go to the heart of what our system of free speech looks like in our country. So it makes them quite fascinating cases. The first I would talk about is called Schwarzenegger versus Entertainment Merchants Association and Entertainment Software Association. It involves a California law that banned the sale or rental of violent video games to persons under 18 years old. The law defines violent as um, killing, maiming, dismembering, or sexually assaulting the image of a human being. And then it's got a multi-part test to, to try to figure out what when that happens. It's enforceable with a $1,000 fine on the companies that sell or rent violent videos to, to minors. The case was challenged by a, a coalition of uh, various software and video producers, and the statute has never really gone into effect. It was blocked by the federal district court in California, and the Ninth Circuit upheld the issuance of that injunction. So the state of California, Governor Schwarzenegger and, and Attorney General Edmund Brown, Jerry Brown, have appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, the case is going to be argued on November 2nd. The issues are, I think, quite fascinating. California essentially says a, a number of things, that um, this is regulating the speech of minors. Minors don't have exactly the same free speech rights that adults do. The law carefully preserves the free speech rights of adults, and so it should be seen in that light, the line of cases involving the rights of students in schools that say that, that students' rights are not entirely coextensive with the rights of adults. The state advances the law as um, uh, upholding parental authority, and the state suggests that because these are minors being affected and because it's violent speech, the Supreme Court ought to use a balancing test that that essentially simply weighs the the state and parental interests against the the intrusion on the ability of minors to to have access to these video games. That's a much lower standard for the court to use than if we were talking about restricting pure adult speech that doesn't fall into some forbidden category like obscenity. So the, the, the state of California is urging the court to adopt this standard, which the court has actually used for the sale or distribution of sexually explicit material to minors. The state is saying equate this to selling uh, pornography obscenity to minors and use the same test. 
the um, industry basically is is piggybacking on something that just happened in the Supreme Court this spring. The the Supreme Court ruled this past term on a case involving depictions of cruelty to uh, to animals, and the some of the parties to the case, including the federal government, seemed to urge the Supreme Court to create a totally new category of unprotected speech, like obscenity, like child pornography, like uh, incitement to lawless action. The government in this animal cruelty case said, let's make this a new category of speech that's entirely outside the First Amendment. The Supreme Court rejected that quite clearly and said, we're not, we're not really interested in creating new categories of unprotected speech in this case. Where, where do we see where do we see this this one going? I mean, balancing tests figure prominently in free speech cases. Um, my my take would be that it the, the uh, it would be way out of line for the court to either create a new category of unprotected speech or to bite and, and find that violent um, expression is equivalent to sexually explicit expression. Mm-hmm. And and to so to buy California's arguments, I I think this ought to come out the other way. But it came out the other way in the lower courts, and so the the industry was surprised that the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, and is somewhat nervous about that. I agree, with Steve. I know that uh, you know one of the the arguments that the industry makes in its brief is you know it, it tells the, the court that it should just let parents and the industry deal with. You know, whether or not children should be allowed to play these games. And it has really tried to undermine the state's argument that this is, in fact, even a problem, that you know, it says that the state's studies about the effect of these games on children have all been really debunked. But I, I agree with Steve that although the court overwhelmingly usually grants a review to reverse statistically, uh, I think it's hard to see, given this, the, this court's skepticism, to and a sort of any sort of government regulation of speech to see this one coming out in the state's favor. And I agree with both of my panelists. Uh, so this case is a bit of a mystery to me because I'm not really sure why the, the court took it. Uh, the uh, lower courts for the past decade or so have unanimously struck down these types of bans on violent video game sales to, to minors on First Amendment grounds. And what my two panelists have said so far, I think is absolutely right about the court's um, First Amendment sensibility. It would be uncharacteristic of the court to, just last term, have rejected the government's argument overwhelmingly uh, in creating a new category of unprotected speech for for crush videos. But uh, uh, this term decide to create a new category of unprotected speech for violent video games, which certainly seem to have broader social appeal. And, and as a gamer myself, I can say certainly more narrative value than what crush videos apparently has. And so um, I wonder why the court took the case, if it uh, would simply be uh, viewed as a vehicle to affirm the lower courts. My suspicion is that perhaps some of the justices are not as familiar with video games as, say, the lower court judges who've had an opportunity to to examine these um, games extensively. And so maybe there is a um, gut reaction that they have to popular media depictions of violence in video games. But my suspicion is that once they examine uh, this case closely and 
look at some of the videos that the uh, industry is likely to showcase, um, they're going to come to the conclusion that uh, you know, this is just another media for uh, telling stories and for uh, covering subjects like war, history, science, myth, and humanity, just like books and, and movies. And they're going to be quite concerned with um, creating a new category of unprotected speech that uh, may bleed over to government arguments to censor violence in other media. So there's really no way for the court to rule for California that wouldn't be huge. Some of these videos also seem to represent to a lot of veterans very similar experiences that they've experienced over in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I wonder if they're also bringing that aspect into the into the case as well. And let's let's move on a little bit uh, to the, the the other First Amendment case that's really coming up all over the place. In fact, we have a story about it in our October edition, Phelps versus Snyder. And when it comes down to depictions of goodness and depravity among uh, among the various participants in a case, you certainly couldn't do more outrageous than this one. Uh, Mr. Snyder is, is, the, is the father of, of a Marine who was killed in Iraq, and Reverend Phelps, is a steadfast believer that he should have the First Amendment right to protest at Marine funerals against homosexuals. What do we think is going to happen here? Well, I mean, I think the court had to take one of these cases eventually because the, the sort of relationship between what we mean when we talk about core free speech and what state tort laws can regulate is really at the heart of this case. I mean, this really this really goes to to the question of what, as we you know, we, we as a society have said, or the Supreme Court has told us that we have to accept unwanted speech, speech that we don't like, speech that may be highly offensive that that's the only way to have a really workable system of free speech. Um, and so that's what's at the heart of this case. This is about as offensive as it's going to get, disrupting a Marine's funeral with signs and, and chants and, uh, and posting a poem on the Internet. And the, you know, the, the thrust of the signs is, thank God for dead soldiers. Uh, God hates you, meaning, meaning the, the father of the dead soldier. I mean, you know, very, very kind of direct, offensive, in-your-face speech, and at a funeral that's supposed to be a, uh, you know, a, a kind of sacred, solemn moment, having to to see this stuff. It's there are very seem to be various explanations for why the protest, but basically the court of appeals here said that that Phelps was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church, that his protest was protected by the First Amendment. And so the court has taken this to, I think, really resolve that that question. Is the is the protest protected by the First Amendment? There are a number of different issues that well, I agree with Steve. This this case is about the heart of the First Amendment. Um, it's not a case that involves Koran burning. It's it's not a case about flag burning. But I think the justices will have both kinds of 
extreme offensive expression in mind when they're considering the free speech issue in this case. And uh, the modern court operates on the understanding that the First Amendment at its core protects political speech, and the more extreme and unpopular the, the speech, the more it needs First Amendment protection in order to ensure robust debate on matters of public concern. And so in the ordinary course, I, I think this would be an easy case for the court to um, uphold its core free speech principles. But what makes this case particularly interesting, and I think a little bit more difficult, is that it, it implicates a competing constitutional interest, the, uh, the interest in avoiding unwanted speech, um, which the court has typically found when the um, complainant is in the privacy of his or her own home. Um, for example, the uh, court struck down um, a, uh, I'm sorry, the court uh, upheld a law that uh, prohibited targeted picketing at the home of a physician who performed abortions because of an overriding interest in the court's view in being free from unwanted speech and harassment in the privacy of one's own home. And these uh, military funerals are not held in private, of course, but I think there's an arguable uh, similar captive audience problem in comparable privacy interests. Another thing that I think will be interesting is to watch the oral argument, uh, you know, with the replacement of Justice Stevens by Justice Kagan, the court lost its last veteran. And so I, mm. I think that mm. perhaps the dynamic at the oral argument might be a little bit different than <laughs> Justice Stevens had, had been there. Sure. And, of course, he was the one that um, famously uh, dissented from the uh, flag-burning case. Right. Exactly. So- Talk about that a little bit, Amy, the, the idea being that the veteran Justice Stevens would possibly give this case a little more, would listen to this case a little differently? I think that's right. I think that you know, there were some areas in which he did bring his, uh, you know, the justices all bring their own backgrounds to bear, in, you know, in various cases. And I, I do think, as in the flag burning case, that his uh, you know, past as a veteran might well have played a role, you know, whether or not he'd be able to, to bring, you know, four members of the court around to see things his way in this case would be a different matter. But certainly he would, would have that past as a veteran and, you know, as has been widely discussed in the wake of his announcement that he was going to retire, may well have been able to play a leadership role on the court perhaps in getting an additional four votes for his position than Elena Kagan, who may well have a different view on the issue and certainly doesn't yet bring the sort of gravitas and and background uh, as a leader on the court to the court yet. What about some other cases? I I, I picked out a few that some of which we deal with here at the at the ABA Journal. One that interested me was the um, autistic children case. Uh, This is a case involving the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Uh, Congress set up a scheme, you know, to provide incentives for vaccine manufacturers to continue to manufacture these childhood vaccines, but then at the same time to provide compensation through an administrative scheme for the children and families who are occasionally injured as a result of this, uh, as a result of receiving a childhood vaccine. And so the, the petitioners in this case are the parents of a baby who was perfectly healthy when she was six months old, received a, a vaccine manufactured by Wyeth, who's the respondent in this case, and then began to have repeated seizures and has been developmentally impaired. And so her parents filed a, a lawsuit against Wyeth. Um, you know, Wyeth has argued that 
the their state tort law claims are preempted by federal law, which you know, precludes liability for design defects in vaccines if the injury or death resulted from side effects that were unavoidable, even though the vaccine was properly prepared and accompanied by proper directions and warnings. And so this is another uh, preemption case, and this is a case uh, in which the replacement of Justice Stevens by Justice Kagan could, in fact, make a difference, um, including because you know, Justice Stevens would likely have been expected to vote for the parents in this case. There have been a couple of preemption cases recently, one involving Wyeth uh, two terms ago and then another one involving the Altria group with a cigarette preemption. And in, in each of those cases, the issue was whether federal law preempts state tort law claims. And in each of those cases, Justice Stevens was in a majority voting in favor of the plaintiffs to allow these state tort law claims. Um, but he is gone now, has been replaced by Justice Kagan, um, and she is, in fact, recused from this case. Mm-hmm. So well, I think that, that there is a there is a view that perhaps she will be more sympathetic to federal preemption claims. She won't be in this case at all. Um, and you know, so one of the, the questions is whether or not this case is going to be different from one of the previous preemption cases, Wyeth versus Levine, and the drug industry's argument in this case is that one of the things that the court emphasized in finding that there was no preemption in Wyeth versus Levine was that there was no sort of administrative scheme to compensate the plaintiffs in that case where there is such a such a scheme in this case. And, and a fairly elaborate one, right? I mean, exactly. that you... You take your you take your complaint to a special p- part of the federal court of claims, and there's a whole separate little procedure for for how those cases get handled. So if if that's the touchstone, you know how much of an administrative system is set up. Well, I'll be happy to take the Arizona case. Okay. Uh, I, I think first it's it's important to talk about what this case is not about. Um, it's not about the new and um, somewhat notorious Arizona law that requires immigrants to carry around proof of their legal status and requires law enforcement to do immigration checks. Um, it's instead about um, another recent Arizona law passed last year that uh, sanctions employers for hiring unauthorized aliens and requires employers to use a, uh, a federal um, eligibil- employment eligibility verification system. And this case... Uh, the statute is similar to other recently enacted state and local anti-immigration laws passed across the country, including here in Oklahoma. And the uh, the issue is whether the state law is preempted by federal immigration law, which is um, less punitive and more balanced by uh, providing some measure of protection to businesses from liability uh, if they use the I-9 system for employment verification. And um, the federal law also provides um, some protections for minorities from discrimination. Uh, what's what's fascinating to me about this case is that it may pit the conservatives on the court against each other, uh, just as the issue of immigration reform has pitted the uh, anti-immigration wing of the Republican Party against the uh, business wing of the Republican Party. And uh, you know, another indicator that this case may not split along reliable ideological lines is that it's uh, made bedfellows of uh, the Chamber of Commerce and the Obama administration, um, both of which are, are siding with the federal law. Mm. Wait, not well just not just the Chamber of Commerce and the Obama administration on the same side of the case, 
also are the American Civil Liberties Union and the Mexican American Legal Defense Union. <laughs> right. I don't think I've ever seen a lineup like that on the same side of a case. Amy? And then just to, you know, make it all a little bit more interesting in terms of who's going to vote how, you know, this is another case in which Justice Kagan is recused because mm-hmm. yes. she would have participated in the decisions that the United States re- made regarding, you know, filing a brief in the case right. at right. the certiorari stage. Let me take off a second on, on, on Justice Kagan. And, and we know that, that she has recused herself. The number that I see now is 21 cases. And I think I got that number out of SCOTUS block. How much of an effect is that going to have on the court this term? I, as I recall, uh, Thurgood Marshall had to recuse himself from any number of cases during his first term in the court. Uh, will, will this be a, will this be a bother with with? I think there are cases like Chamber of Commerce versus Whiting, which in turn will, although it's not the exact same case, will it certainly have an effect on you know, the decisions in the other Arizona immigration case, in which. You know, the absence of Justice Kagan could well make a difference. You know, in these closely divided cases, if one justice is out, that could swing you know, the decision the other way. Even if it winds up that the, the case winds up you know, dividing four-four, resulting in the affirmance of the decision below. So the, the Brusewitz versus Wyeth, the vaccine case, right. is another one of those cases. There's a. a third preemption case of this term called Williamson versus Mazda, Motor, mm-hmm. Mazda Motors, in which she's recused, um, could make a, a preemption case, could make a difference in, in that case. And then a Sixth Amendment case called Michigan versus Bryant mm-hmm. is another case in which she's recused. Um, in that case, the defendant, the, the, the criminal defendant, won in the lower courts. And so uh, this is another area of the Sixth Amendment in which it's thought that perhaps the switch from Justice Stevens to Justice Kagan could make a, a difference, and so her vote may well wind up playing a key role, or the absence of her vote in that case. Well, you know, I think it's always frustrating to everybody to have decisions end in 4-4 ties. It's not, right. it's not what you hope will happen, and not that you want somebody to participate in a case when they really do have a conflict of interest, but I think this may be a frustrating year ahead in that regard, that that there's at least the possibility of those 4-4 ties. I mean, the other thing then you don't know is I've always liked the, the image of a new justice as being kind of like when we were kids playing in the sandbox and a new kid arrived in the neighborhood. You don't know what it's going to do to the dynamic in the sandbox, but it's probably going to have some impact. Mm -hmm. But if she's not participating in so many of these cases, it's hard to know exactly how that plays, what her real impact on the court is in this first term. Is there anything that's going to be lost by not having a former judge on the Supreme Court? This is, I think, the first time that, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the last time this happened was when Rehnquist was nominated. You know, let me just flip that question around and, and, and answer it by saying I think there's going to be something to be gained, um, you know, just to use Steve's uh, metaphor as a sandbox. Uh, if you have a court that's uh, filled entirely with former lower court judges, then I, I, I think there's a tendency uh, to think more inside the box and to view cases um, through the lens of, of precedent uh, as, as constraints. And I think with a uh, 
justice that comes from academia or or from practice, you at least um, have the possibility of someone examining precedent with with a fresh eye and perhaps um, you know, rethinking um, how the court approaches certain areas of law. And I think that's um, probably an advantage. Perhaps you don't want a court entirely of non-former judges, but I think one is healthy. Mm-hmm. Another question involving this term is this is the first time that we've had three just three women justices. And let me quote a um, a bit of a survey that had come out a few years ago uh, by the Wellesley Centers for for Women that basically said that 15% of Fortune 500 boards around the country had at least three women, and that the number three is 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 the huge number that that leaps the number of women beyond tokenism into more of an acceptance. That, is that number going to be a key a key issue for having for having women justices on on the court? Maybe. I mean, I would jump in and say at least symbolically, it's just striking to me how far we've come. It's given that this is 2010; it's about 30 years ago, which to me isn't that long ago, when they were debating whether they were going to have to modify the bathrooms in the conference room to accommodate the first woman on the court, Sandra Day O'Connor, and and now. You know, we really have have come to a point where where women have finally arrived as uh, I, I think it's fair to say as equal players. You know, we're not. It's, it's not a shock that there are three women on the court. They're they're there and they're going to be there. And I think that's the, the, these last ones is particularly good when they're going to be there. I, you know, when Justice O'Connor retired and she was replaced by Justice Alito, the court was first. You know, three years down to just one woman. And I, I, I think, I hope that with three women on the court now, we'll, we'll never find ourselves back in a position in which there are fewer than two and hopefully, you know, no fewer than three justice, three female justices on the court. Yeah, this is a historic milestone, but yeah, I, I guess I look at it from the other side and, and see that it's even more remarkable that it took us more than 200 years to get to three on, on the court, and, and to me, that indicates that the uh, the country, the court, and the legal profession still have um, a ways to go to um, to have gender equality. Um, going back to your your question about whether or not this might make a, a, a difference on the court in terms of outcomes, um, I, I think for the most part, ideology will still uh, be the determinative factor in closely divided cases, but I, I can't help but think about some of the um, the cases during the past few terms that involved gender in some prominent form or, or others, such as the uh, pay disparity case and the case involving the strip search of the uh, 13-year-old girl. Uh, after oral argument in that case, Ginsburg pointedly remarked uh, that perhaps her male colleagues just simply didn't get it because none of them had been 13-year-old girls. And one wonders whether that case would have come out differently in favor of the girl. Um, had there been three women voting as a block, um, it may have made some of the male colleagues on, on the court uncomfortable with joining an all-male opinion on the other side. And so I think at the margins, in, in cases involving gender, um, this block may make a difference. But overall, I think ideology will be the determinative factor. I had those two points actually uh, written out in my in my um, in my outline, Joe, and and I, I, I agree with you. I, my, I guess my question, my overall question is, 
are the are the Lily Ledbetters of the world going to appreciate this more often than than previously? Are are the the decisions now going to be are are litigants such as her now going to be given more or less um, due than 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 previously? Well, this ventures into that uh, that word that's now banned from judicial confirmation hearings. It's the E word, empathy, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and whether or not uh, empathy is um, uh, a relevant factor, one, in considering Supreme Court justices, and, and whether it, it, it does uh, and should play a role in, in decision-making at, at the court. Um, I think Obama got it right when he said, you know, it, it's helpful to have justices be able to step into the litigants' shoes. And mm-hmm. I've been married for nine years, and uh, my wife you know, occasionally has to remind me that I'm not seeing things from, from the other point of view. And so I, I do think it's important um, to have uh, a critical mass of, of women and ensure that that in cases involving uh, gender, that you have a balanced viewpoint on the court. And, and, and Amy, uh, just to jump into my own uh, my own tokenism here, as 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 a woman lawyer and as a litigator, um, how does that affect you at all? Or did, do you pose the arguments a little differently? Do you do you gauge uh, some of the justices' um, opinions a little differently? I don't think it affects. From a lawyer's perspective, necessarily, I think, as Joe said, you know that that even if it's somewhat intangible, that that they do bring different life experiences um, when they're hearing oral argument, and, and they may be able to make comments during oral argument, or in Justice Ginsburg's case, after the oral argument, that you know, may move the decision one way or the other. But I also just think it's incredibly important, you know, in a gender discrimination mm-hmm. case, you know, if that you know a, a woman petitioner or a woman respondent doesn't look up there and see, you know, eight or nine men, you know, considering a gender discrimination case. It just the it, it's the the bench is now much more representative. It's not completely representative, but more representative of America in, in my view. I mean, I would just add I think I, I agree with all of that. I think it's not entirely symbolic. I would make two points. I think Justice O'Connor probably was most consistently moderate to progressive in gender discrimination cases than in any other genre of Supreme Court case during her term on the bench. And I think in 17 years as a justice, the most profound moment of Justice Ginsburg's tenure was her decision in the in the VMI case, the, the Virginia Military Institute case. Um, and and that's not a coincidence either. I really do think it makes a difference. Let's move on to another topic that has come up recently, and um, I, I will refer to uh, an article that uh, Adam Liptak of the New York Times wrote. Now, he's written about these topics before, but two weeks ago he wrote an article that had to do with clerks and the politicization of the court. And his point basically was that the um, the hiring of clerks has has been geared much greatly towards politically pure law students or or, 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 practice, or practicing lawyers. I, I'm just wondering where the court is going with this. Is it, is it more political now than it ever was, say, during the New Deal? Are, are we seeing this growing more and more? 
as a former and, and Joe Joe is a former clerk and a and a and a, and a Harvard law student. I'll let that <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm not sure I can provide historical perspective back to um back to the New Deal, but okay. uh, it, 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 it's, it's not entirely surprising news to me. But it's it's not welcome news either. Um, it, it certainly reinforces the public sense, if not the reality, that the court has simply become another branch where Republicans and Democrats fight. Um, I did see this kind of hiring pattern, um, the term I clerked 2000 to 2001, um, the conservative justices tended to hire from feeder judges from the Court of Appeals, uh, and the uh, judges from the conservative side tended to be appointed by uh, Republican appointees, and um, the flip side was also true with the moderate to to liberal chambers. Anecdotally, though, um, inside the Stevens chambers, um, the only marching order that that Stevens gave us uh, when we looked through oh more than 500 clerkship applications was just to you know, to find me the best uh, clerks. And you know he didn't specify ideology or he didn't specify lower court judges or or, or law schools. Um, I do think, though, that. Um, uh, the justices are more comfortable hiring from people that they know and and, and trust, and so I, I think perhaps this hiring pattern has come about uh, by accident. But now that it's entrenched, I, I think it it presents an uncomfortable um, problem for the court, at least um, from an external PR standpoint, if not also from uh, an internal decision-making standpoint. Um, and internally, I, I think um, their decision-making may be affected perhaps at the margins uh, in, in two different ways. Um, uh, the, the first place where the ideology of a law clerk may potentially make a difference in the court's decision-making is um, at the certiorari stage, because the uh, justices have largely delegated to the clerks the, the task of sifting through oh, 08,000 or so cert petitions a year to pick the um, 80 or so that the court's going to hear. So it's not impossible that a law clerk could bury um, a needle in the haystack by minimizing the importance of a case to the justices. And you know, I don't think that happens often, but you know, I, I think I saw it a couple of times when I clerked. Uh, the second and potentially more important place where a law clerk could make an ideological difference is in opinion writing. And since Stevens left the court, I think every justice that is on the court now, with um, Kagan the, being the unknown, uh, delegates to the law clerks the critical task of um, writing the first drafts of their opinions, and that can have a lasting influence on the way opinions are framed and, and phrased. So in those two areas, I think law clerk ideology may matter and may skew the court's decision-making, but um, I still think for the large part, this is more a PR problem for the court than, than it is a decision-making problem, because um, I think the role of law clerks has to some extent been overemphasized of late in the media, and I think that's partly because the law clerks as a group have tended to be more outspoken uh, and that they as a group have a more exaggerated view of their own importance. I would just add one wrinkle on what I thought was a very fine story that Adam did, but it's one thing that I think has changed and has gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit. Um, I think justices like Justice Brennan, whose biography I've written, um, uh, you know, tended to, to hire from feeder judges. He got most of his law clerks from David Bazelon and Skelly Wright on the D.C. Circuit. But David Bazelon and Skelly Wright weren't engaging in the same kind of ideological screening that I think the federal appeals court judges are engaging in. So 
Skelly Wright was famous for finding out uh, within minutes who the newly elected president of the Harvard Law Review was <laughs> and calling that person the, the night of the election and offering them a clerkship. But that that really wasn't an ideological screening. So if Brennan was taking his clerks that way, some of them were liberal, but some of them were moderate and some of them were conservative. And it was a different kind of screening than I think what is taking place now. And, and Amy, you see a lot of these uh, law students uh, doing their litigation at uh, at Stanford these days. Um, well, what kind of thoughts are, are in their minds, and, and how, does that, how does that work itself? For well, I mean, I think that they, when a lot of them, when they are applying, are trying to get to you know the, the, what they regard as sort of the best and most interesting courts of appeals jobs. To follow up on what Joe said, I, I would agree with him that this is largely an external PR problem. I mean, I think from the a first point to keep in mind is that you know many of the Supreme Court's cases are not really ideological cases. They're statutory construction cases. Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily the court is not going to be divided five four on ideological lines. The court's going to be seven two or eight one or nine nothing. Um, and the second is that in the sort of closely divided five four ideological cases, you know, campaign finance and things like that, you know, certainly the clerk drafting the opinion may make a difference in, in the margins but and you know, with regard to the votes on the cases themselves these are you know the justices are very smart people mm-hmm. who have been thinking about these issues for a long time and I, i'm not sure that a, a 25 year old law clerk no matter how smart and politicized is necessarily going to push a justice in one direction or another in the case and so i well, I, as i said i agree with you that perhaps it's an external pr problem i, I don't see it Except for the, sort of the two areas that he mentioned, as really having any real impact inside the court. I, I, I should also make personal note that my civil procedure professor was the only Temple Law School grad <laughs> where I went to law school, who actually was a clerk for Justice Rehnquist way back in the day. Proud of that myself. Um, what's the overall direction of the court? Where are we going now? I, uh, throwing that out just as a general closing question, there are some thoughts as to whether Justice Ginsburg is thinking about resigning more and more now that the, the Obama administration is in power, or are we going to have to wait till the second Palin administration before we see something like that? Well, Justice Ginsburg said last month that she wanted to serve at least as long as Justice Brandeis, who served until he was 82. And she's 77, so that would be five more years. So mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, anyone thinks that there's going to be a voluntary retirement before the 2012 presidential elections. Um, you know, whether or not Justice Ginsburg would retire if President Obama were reelected or would try to stay on if a President Palin or a President Pawlenty would, would be reelected still remains an, an open question. But you know, given the, the fact that, that she is you know, will be in her 80s during the next presidential administration, whatever administration that will be, and that you know, Justices Kennedy and Scalia will be getting uh, close to 80 during that same period. It certainly does make the, the next presidential election very important from the, the perspective of the court. Let's certainly leave that where it is. It's going to be a very, very interesting term, and I want to thank every one of you for participating with us today. We have Amy Howe, Joe Tai, 
and Steve Wormiel. It's been a pleasure to have you all with us. And hopefully we'll be able to stay in touch throughout the semester, uh, throughout the term rather, and uh, we'll be able to touch bases and see how, see how the future of the Supreme Court goes this term. This ABA Journal podcast was brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. The most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com.